Mindfulness Mode 469. Everything that we want really comes down to the question of, are you going to use your mind as a bridge or are you going to use it as a barrier? Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. I'm Bruce Lankford. I'm so glad you're here. So awesome to have you as a listener. And you know what? Maybe you have an online business or maybe you do some social media or something and you need to be all the time getting social media out there, getting messages out there to your listeners. For a long time, I've been using something called Meet Edgar. And it's a tool to help you with that. It makes it easy to schedule and automate your content on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. And you can actually get a second month free. You can get the first month free, but if you use my link here, you can get the second month free and you can help me out a little bit too. The link where you go is mindfulnessmode.com slash Edgar if you want to try out this tool. Today, I'm not even going to go into an introduction right now because I do introduce my guest when I go live. And it's just so much fun talking with this guest. We're laughing, we're talking about health and how to bring joy into your life. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I am so excited because I have the author of this book with me today. And the book is, get this, Wild World, Joyful Heart. And Lori is with me today. Hey, Lori, are you in mindfulness mode? I am. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And we're both laughing. We're both laughing because we had a few technical issues, but we're still mindful, right, Lori? (laughs) I was chuckling to myself and being glad that I wasn't getting too flustered like I would have done a long time ago. I know, me too. Well, Lori Warren is all about helping people and organizations be happier and healthier. She's a speaker, a writer, she's a corporate consultant, she's a clinician, and her approach, I love this, is grounded in three foundational beliefs. And we'll be talking about these three beliefs in the show, so I won't give them all away now, but I'll tell you that it, I'll give you a clue, body, mind, and something else. So we'll be talking about all this, Lori. It's going to be so much fun. But first, let's start here. What does mindfulness mean to you, Lori? So mindfulness for me, and it's interesting, this is in my book, I outline 10 healing practices for the mind, and then mindfulness is the first one of the 10. Because really, the other, all the others come off of this one. Mindfulness for me is being aware and present in the moment that I'm in without judgment. So it's the present moment. It's basically the present moment minus my opinion of it. As an example, in the 15-minute technical kerfuffle we just had, it was studiously not wanting the moment to be different than it was because we were just having technology issues and I knew we'd figure it out. Yes. So it's just a matter of like, okay, I'm not going to let this get me off center. We'll figure it out and let's see if we can have fun while we're doing it. So it's really in the key word for me, Bruce is minus our opinion of it. It's remove. It's our judgment of, of the current moment that puts us into an unhappy place. 
Yeah, and it can put us into an extremely unhappy place. We have a lot of power, don't we? <laughs> Lori, I love that your website is so easy to type in. LoriWarren.com, L-A-U-R-I-E, LoriWarren.com, W-A-R-R-E-N. So Mindful Tribe, you'll want to check out Lori Warren's website after we get finished chatting but the book wild world joyful heart oh man it was so great why did you decide to write this book Lori? you know it's interesting i'm not sure that i really decided so it was more like i felt again um you know before we kind of went live i was talking about the feeling of you know that the book for me is kind of like when you say oh i want to have a baby and then you have a baby and you're like oh my god what have i done not really i have four (laughs) kids and i love them but you know that it's yeah. in the beginning. You're like, what was I thinking? And with the book, like, I really felt like I had something in me that needed to come out. So we're back to that baby comparison again, like, like that I had to give birth to something. And I actually, in the, in the introduction, talk about the birth, like the birth of the book. And the thing that flipped the switch, Bruce, was that Interestingly, one of the CEOs of one of my corporate clients who became a good friend over the years that I worked with this company, we were out to lunch one day and he just, you know, when someone like their eyes just level with you and you Mm -hmm. know, you're like, okay, what's coming? And he looked at me and he said, when are you going to take all this stuff that's in your head and, and get it in a book for more people to have access to? And I, (laughs) and it was, I just looked at him like, apparently soon. (laughs) Um, And you know, and I knew, and I, and there are more books. I've already started outlining the next book, but this one, you know, there's the kind of break the seal, like you get the first big, scary thing. And the good news is I had no idea what I was getting into. Thank goodness. So three and a half years later, the book will come out. And um, yeah, that's sort of how I got launched into it. And the book comes out in October, doesn't it? Yes. October 8th. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thrilled to have an advanced copy of the manuscript to be able to read what you've put together, and I can I can just tell this is going to be such a successful book because it's so easy to read. You're sharing stories, and you're sharing such important material. But let's talk about prisoners. Let's talk about our system of incarceration and and how you got into that, and how that affects what you think about mindfulness and about nutrition and all this kind of thing. Let's start there. That's such an interesting place to start. And what's funny for me is yesterday when I was in the recording studio, recording the audiobook for the, the gentleman that was the engineer, we got this long discussion about the prison system. And I'm, I'm not an expert on prison systems, um, but I, I do have some strong feelings about the system as I understand it. Yes. Um, again, I've never been incarcerated. I'm not a prison guard or prison warden or anything else. I have a friend that's a prison guard and a few people actually that work in prison. So I, and I've had long conversations. I do understand as a layperson what the situation is and, and what the, what you're referring to is in when I'm going through some of the cultural myths in the first chapter Yes, that keep us, you know, unhappy and unhealthy and joyless. I talk about solution-based solutions versus problem-based solutions and that we love solution-based solutions. Solution-based solution looks like, okay, these people committed crimes that were detrimental to society. So we're going to 
take those people and put them in their own society and punish them and make their life miserable. And then they'll be out of our hair. And then when they come out, they'll have realized the badness of their ways and they'll be better. (laughs) That is so not what happens in prison. No, no. And isn't it something like 77% end up back in prison again, right? In less than five years. Yeah. Wow. So sad. It it is so sad. And people that hurt people hurt people. So, and and folks have a hard time sometimes because they want to be angry and they want to hate the person that did the bad thing. And and it's not like we're saying, oh, it's okay that you murdered this person. It's not that at all. No, no. It isn't woo-woo land where you're like, oh, everybody's lovely and it's all okay. It's not lovely or okay, right? But it's also not okay to take a person who, because hurt people hurt people, this person probably has trauma, you know, was abused. Almost all of it goes back to trauma. We'll just leave it at that. I could make a long list. And then because they're hurt, they just keep doing that in the world around them. So then we take them, we put them in a prison where, you know, we don't need to get into all the unfortunate things that happen in prison, the way people are treated, the way they treat each other, the gang mentality, the prison guards who many of them like being in a position of power. I mean, the conversations I've had with prison guards, literally, I try not to think about it before I go to sleep because it's very disturbing. Yeah. And then we feed them, you know, when I talk about in the book, why I harp on this, we feed them terrible food. Right. Exactly. Uh, Processed food, food that really has very little nutritional value. Right. And what a lot of research shows is that that kind of food brings us into our primal brain, our amygdala. And that is not where our decision-making and moral choices and all that's in the, in our frontal lobe. So we're feeding them food that makes it so their brain doesn't work as well. They're not accessing the part of the brain that can actually help them be their best person because yes, they have that in them. We all do. We all have our best person in us. And it, and it's an evolutionary thing. It's not like there's one best person. It's like we evolve and can evolve into more and more of our best self. And so I brought up in the book, that interesting book that I read by the, the probate person, Barbara Stitt, that actually part of her routine with probationers was to mandate that they change their diet. And she had an 11% rearrest rate with her something like 5,000 plus probationers that came through her system. I just find that really interesting. Yeah. And 5,000 people, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And, you know, I get frustrated sometimes people are like, well, that's not a real study. It's not a double blind placebo. You know, I went to grad school. I studied all this stuff. I know what a real study looks like, but you can't argue with that kind of on the ground experience. You can't argue with it. It's not an anomaly. I don't care if it wasn't double blind. (laughs) Like we're looking at a 77% versus an 11. I just find that really interesting. And I think all that aside I don't think it takes much of a stretch for anyone to think, gee, when I'm mistreated, it makes me feel mean and crabby, right? You're right. So you take someone that committed, you know, a crime on some level, and now you put them in a place where all day, all day, they're treated like kind of an animal. Right. I mean, we are animals, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And mistreated and made to feel bad about themselves. You're a prisoner. You're less than. You are no longer worthy of being in society or, and again, there is obviously something needs to happen. You can't just run around killing people or whatever. I just look at the system 
not just this one. I, I list a few of them in my book, the kind of um, problem-based solutions or solution-based solutions. This one to me is just a glaring problem. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. And we keep doing it. It's like repeatedly driving your car into the wall and then being frustrated that you're not getting to your destination. Exactly. Because we're pretending it works, but it mm-hmm. obviously does not work. doesn't yeah. work. So in the book, I say, wouldn't it be, I wonder what would happen if we fed them real food. And, you know, unlike my kids that have choices, they'd have to eat what was in front of them because that's what's being served. And they all had to undergo trauma therapy because I, I am again, I'm not an expert. I bet you 99% of those people have pretty significant trauma in their lives. Oh, yeah. And you talk a lot about trauma in the book and you say that so many of us don't understand what trauma really is and we push it aside and we pretend it didn't happen and all that kind of thing. Trauma is the basis for so many of our problems, right, Lori? It is. Yeah, it's really, we don't want to look at it. We don't want to talk about this. You know, we'd much rather do our social media worthy highlights of life And we don't want to look at this sort of not very attractive underbelly that, and I, and I don't remember the statistics right now off the top of my head, Bruce, but the the amount of people that have experienced significant trauma is astounding. And people say, oh, come on. It's not like everybody's getting like beat up at home. It's like, it's not, I'm giving an example. A huge number of the adult population deals with clinical depression. Huge like more than 30%. Right. Depressed people as parents are not able to connect with their child. So that child, this is a form of trauma. You have basically a disconnected parent who can't, not because they're a bad person, but they literally don't have anything to give to you. And so that is a form of trauma that you had a parent that actually was not there for you, like couldn't be there for you. And kids more than anything need to bond and connect with their parents. So that's why I think people think of trauma, they think of very violent things and that is trauma. But there are many, many other forms of trauma that can, and people get frustrated saying, oh, well, everything's trauma now. Like, you know, we tend to take something and run with it and then we paint everything with that color. And I'm not suggesting that. I'm simply suggesting that we get real about what's really going on inside of people and that. When someone nine times out of 10, and this kind of harks back to the, the, the prison discussion, nine times out of 10, when someone lashes out at you during your day, I'm driving and someone cuts me off and, you know, flips me off, right? Not mm-hmm. an amazing feeling. No. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, I, let's say in that moment, I was following the driving laws and they just, they're not having a good moment. It has nothing to do with me. And so I, I think a lot, we don't like to dig into trauma. This isn't the only reason, but because a lot of us are parents and we think, well, God, someday my kids could dig in. No one's a perfect parent. We, this isn't a shame and blame game. This isn't, about, this isn't about that. It's not about digging back and making the depressed parent who wasn't there for the child feel bad. It serves nothing. It's about helping the traumatized release their trauma. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you are so passionate about this. And that's what I love about the book. It comes right across as clear as anything, your drive and your passion. And you said in the book, for me, my drive for understanding is about 
two questions, how we can set ourselves up to realize our untapped potential to thrive in body and mind and to more fully express our spirit. So yes. let's talk about that. How, and the other one, how can our thriving as potential individuals contribute to solving our global challenges? And we have global challenges that are just sitting there and not being solved. And that's huge. It is. I know they're big wishes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, but why not? You know, we need yeah. to be addressing these things. Yeah, I just, I feel that, so my experience in working with people, so just l little background, you know, I, midlife, I, I used to work in high tech for a dozen years. And then I had a big passion was lit in me through a few things to really focus on health. So I didn't have the term at the time, but for me, it's empowered well-being. How can we live the healthiest, happiest, most joyful version of ourselves? And so when I got out of grad school, so I went back to grad school in midlife, got a graduate degree in clinical and integrative nutrition and was all about food and what food, and I say was, I still am, I love food. I really do believe in food as medicine. Doesn't solve everything, but it's a big part because we build our physical body with our food. But as things go, you know, when we get taught lessons in humility, my very first client out of grad school was not responding to what I was doing. And I was doing the right things in the right order. And I quickly realized, not quickly, over a course of a couple months, I realized that something else was at play for her. And so, and I got open to this door of that and meanwhile, I'm reading all kinds of cool people like, you know, Deepak Chopra and people that are into the whole mind body. And I was like, gosh, you cannot separate these three aspects. And you know what? I would argue there's a fourth aspect, which is like our emotional body. I've kind of lumped that into mind in the book because it always just gets too confusing. These, these aspects are all intricately intertwined with each other. They instruct and inform each other. And this isn't me just pontificating. This is like the study of epigenetics, you know, thank you, Bruce Lipton, shows that the way we think actually changes our gene expression. That's huge. And there's studies now that, you know, when we get stressed out, there's these, I'm going to get a little biochemical for a minute, but this is really cool stuff. So we have these little telomeres. There are things on the end of our GNA strands that protect the GNA strand from getting frayed and beat up. And stress does that. So it beats up our telomeres, which is bad for us in genetic expression. Compassion actually rebuilds our telomeres, which is giving or receiving it. So I find it flabbergasting that we're still working to help people understand the body-mind-spirit connection when, you know, quote unquote, even science, because people tend to separate those. I don't, I see science and spirituality as very similar in a lot of ways. It's interesting that we still have trouble stomaching that. And so part of my work is helping people, having this kind of conversation, helping people understand that you're not just a machine, like you're not just this physical body that you can kind of do whatever you want to. And, and there's no other parts that matter that affect your well-being as a person. I'd like to go back to the beginning when I did the intro and I said that your approach is grounded in three foundational beliefs. And the first one we've talked about quite a bit, the body is a self-organizing 
organism that's hardwired for healing. And of course, a lot of that is through food and there's a lot of other ways we can heal. But the second one, our mind can be used as either a bridge or a barrier in our quest for well-being. And oh, wow, can it ever be a barrier, right? (laughs) So you've hit, Bruce, on that is actually the core of the book. The core of the book is that everything that we want really comes down to the question of, are you going to use your mind as a bridge or are you going to use it as a barrier? Well, we can use our technology kerfuffle before we began this lovely discussion. I could have used my mind as a barrier. You could have too. Yes. Oh, this is terrible. Bah, like, yeah. you know, this is a waste of time. On each yeah. other. That guy, Bruce is a ding dong. He <laughs> yeah. didn't have it right. I didn't have, you know, the, the people that run the internet are stupid. Like we could have gone into this whole big thing. Yeah. Right. And so now I'm using my mind as a barrier because that actually doesn't solve anything. It doesn't allow us to have this lovely conversation. It doesn't actually do anything except send a negative vibration out into the world. And we have plenty of that. We don't need to add to it. And so in that simple situation, just, you know, cultivating a sense of humor and being like, okay, well, this is kind of funny and getting it figured out. And, you know, I don't want it at all. And I'm very clear about this in the book. I don't want to paint myself as this person that like always has it all together. And I'm always being mindful and like, yay, I would love that. And I hope to get there someday. Probably won't because I'm a messy human like the rest of us. But the point is, the more often we do that, the better we feel and the more we trust ourselves. And that's a huge thing when you start to learn to trust that like, I'm okay and I I can figure this out. And I have this powerful mind that I can really change every experience in my life by the way I use my mind. That's Cool. It's a very cool realization, isn't it, Lori? It's not like, oh, you have to have a gym membership and you have to buy all this food and you have to do this and you have to get your sleep app and you have to, you know, I'm not saying there's nothing external. It's like this mind that you're embodied with, you can do so much with that to improve the everyday experience that you're having right now with the income you have, with the living situation you have, with the people that are in it, everything the way it is right now, you can pretty drastically increase. And the keyword is your experience of that. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell I get really excited about that? <laughs> I can tell it's, it's very cool. It's very cool how excited you get and your book is amazing. And then, and then the third one, what matters most is who we are as we move through this world. And that's so true. What is our story? Is it a positive story? Is it uplifting? Is it about helping others and helping ourselves? Or is it a story about how we're not enough? You know, I would love to, if you're open to it, I'd love to share you a a little personal example. Please do. Because people get the idea that, you know, this has to be like, like a big thing. Like I have to do big, you know, who I am as I, as I move for the world. Like, what does that mean? Do I have to be, do something different? It's like, nope, you just need to, in each moment, when you think of it, focus on bringing your best self to the table. So the example I have is a small one, actually with my kids, and hopefully I won't get in trouble for talking about them on the podcast. So one of my, I have four kids, the uh, two sons who are 17 and 19. So my 19 year old, went to college because there's all kinds of societal pressure to go to college. And that's the way to be a successful person, even though we never stopped to define what success means, but that's how you do it. 
and I was clear with him because he just was kind of flopping around around college. I said, look, dude, maybe why don't you take a gap year? Like when you didn't want any part of that because there's so much pressure. You know, the particular area I live in, 97% of the high school goes to college. Wow. So there's a amount of pressure to do that. Yes. Right? So long story short, he went to a semester of college, absolutely hated it, was miserable, was homesick, and truth wasn't ready to leave home. Um, I think, you know, we have this arbitrary, okay, you're 18, you're not all go run out and be a person. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, you know, in this particular example I'm giving you, I look really snazzy, but I have plenty of unsnazzy moments. So I'm sitting on the couch with my son. He just left college and like physically left college, but he hadn't made the decision yet to not go back. We're sitting on the couch and I just said, dude, like, do you want to go to college? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I want. And I said, look, if it helps at all, I don't need you to be anything more than you are right now. Like you, to me, you are one of the most successful people I know of any age because he's an amazing person. He's kind, he's compassionate. He's a good friend. He's responsible. He's just a good guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, all four of my kids are great. I'm picking, I'm choosing him because he had this college experience. Right. And, you know, he was just, he got very emotional after that. And it was very releasing for him because it was like, it allowed him to be okay with the way he moves through the world is enough. What, what he does for work, I could give a rat tiny what he does for work. You know, if he continues to move through the world as he does now, you know, thinking of other people and trying to make things right and protecting the weak and, you know, all that stuff. Great. Party on, man. That is, <laughs> yay. Yeah. <laughs> as a parent, I don't need you to be some whatever material defined success that we tend to go by in our culture. I don't, I don't need that. So I think if we could each give ourselves permission to embody that for ourselves, like what is the most authentic version of me and how can I move through the world in a way that serves me and serves other people? Hallelujah. I think that's awesome. That's a great story of how you sat down with them and just went through these things. Do you have a story about bullying? I've worked in that field for a long time. Do you have a story you can share share with us? That work. It's so important. And people think of it as just being kids. Adults get bullied too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love that. I just, I love, thank you for that work. You're welcome. Um, I, I do, I have, you know, it's interesting that the story I have of bullying is actually, and you know, I think all of my kids experience bullying and we, it's just kind of part and parcel, unfortunately. Um, but I do have one experience that really stands out for me. And the reason it stands out is that unlike all of the other situations for me personally, when I was growing up, when I got bullied and I did this particular one, I didn't know it, Bruce. So I can't, I can't take credit for what happened, but for whatever reason, I completely went into a mindfulness situation in a very tense, violent situation and it worked. <laughs> so I had a girlfriend, we'll call her Mary, and uh, she had a boyfriend that I didn't think was good for her and for a whole bunch of reasons. And, you know, you can tell when someone starts to not be themselves and not Mm -hmm. take care of themselves. And I just saw her going down a very unfortunate path and I was worried and sad for her. 
And so then being a teenager or a person, I stuck my big nose in where it didn't belong. And her mother asked me one day what I thought of this boyfriend, we'll call him Bob, so Bob and Mary. And I told her what I thought and probably should have kept my mouth zipped. And he got wind of it. So I'm in high school. And he was a good enough guy to not beat me up himself. Because obviously, you know, males are more powerful and that would have been a pretty unfair fight. And I'm a, you know, kind of a small woman. So he invited one of his friends, a very large, powerful woman to beat me up. Oh, okay. And she didn't like me anyway. So she was kind of stoked about that invitation. And I remember like it was yesterday. And this is, you know, I was, I think, 16 at the point and I'm 53 now. It was a long time ago. I remember standing in front of a window in like a split staircase where you go up one and then there's a flight, like a little landing and then you go up another flight. So I was standing mm-hmm. on that landing. There was a window there. And this woman, Tina, that's actually her real name, was standing in front of me and she's saying, I'm going to beat the bleep out of you. And I stood there and there were all these kids gathered outside the window, all her friends, like ready to cheer and, you know, kind of one of those public stoning situations. Yes. And to be clear, I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. And I stood there and looked at her and I said, okay, go ahead. And she's like, what? Well, like, put your hands up. And I said, I'm not going to fight you. I will not win. So just do what you need to do. And, and I'm just going to stand here. Wow. And this poor woman, this poor girl, she got so frustrated. And then she was trying to goad me and I just wouldn't be goaded because it seemed so like ridiculous. Like she was the toughest girl in school. Like everyone was afraid of her. Right. And so I'm certainly not going to, you know, beat her up. And plus I've never hit anybody in my life. It's just not my mojo. And she walked away. Wow. And the crowd was very sad. And the moment I didn't know it, but I was using mindfulness. I'm here in this moment. This person is feeling violent towards me. There's absolutely nothing I can do about it because I can't beat her up. I'm not strong enough. I don't really want to either. And so I'm just going to stand in this moment as it is without judging it or putting my opinion in it and just see what happens. It sounds kind of ridiculous when I say it with my outside voice. But when you ask me the question, that's what came up is that incidents and how all the rest of the time I didn't do that. You know, I didn't handle the bullying well. I did get inside my own mind and rehash it a million times and allow it to paint my view of myself. I think a lot of times when we get bullied, we paint our how we feel about ourselves with that brushstroke. I just think that's a great story. I just love that story. It's so powerful. Just, just sent shivers as you said, and I just stood there and there was nothing she could do because you, you know, it's just you amazing. Like, you, I mean, <laughs> even she couldn't punch this, you know, skinny, non-muscly, non-big, I'm tall, but I'm, you know, like little, like I'm not a formidable force. Yeah. And I think it's just like, this is ridiculous. This isn't even fun. No. <laughs> like, I made it so unfun for her. Wow. On Facebook, you're Lori Warren. I know that you can be found L-A-U-R-I-E-W-A-R-R-E-N right there on Facebook. As we move forward, Lori, in our interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Oh, boy, this is going to make me sound so vanilla, I think, but the Dalai Lama. Oh, yeah. Had a big influence on you. 
Oh, just so big. I've read so many of his books and like listened to his talks. And I just, I'm very inspired by someone who gets thrown out of, well, escapes from their own country away from all the people that need him and manages to just turn that into him taking the message of compassion and mindfulness into the world. Like, I just think that's incredibly inspiring. Well, it is incredible. And there's nothing vanilla about it, really. You yeah, know, like, but I, I wish I would have somebody who's like different and unusual. It's like, <laughs> I love him. <laughs> Absolutely. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Lori? Oh, huge. That's probably one of the biggest effects is not is mindfulness creating that space and like being in the present moment as is, which I don't do all the time. I like anybody else will get run away with my emotions. But in the moments where I remember, which now it's just, you know, the more you practice it, the more it becomes habits, like everything. I have a whole chapter on habits. It just changes the ability of my emotions, which, you know, I talk about in the book, emotions are important messengers. We need them. They're good. When they become ungood is when we let our mind run away with them and rehash them and replay them and exacerbate them and all that. So mindfulness helps me not do that. Oh, yeah. It makes such a big difference. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness, Lori? You know, what's interesting is that, what's interesting to me. So it's not so much just breathing that has been helpful for me, but learning how to breathe. That sounds ridiculous because it's, you know, it's autonomic. Like, we, like it's not something that we consciously do. I mean, I do right. not think about it and breathe all the time, but learning to breathe, moving my ribs in and out, like using the bottom of my ribs was pretty life-changing for me. It turns out that I was a pretty shallow breather as someone who is pretty, you know, driven and busy and blah, blah, like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. I found myself doing this sort of upper respiratory breathing, which makes our neck tense and makes us feel air hunger and actually puts us in more of our sympathetic nervous system. Whereas especially a deep out breath really helps invoke our parasympathetic, which is our rest and digest, like our quieting part of our nervous system. So yeah, breath, learning how to breathe, which I actually learned from an Alexander Technique person, which is a whole method of working with the body. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what book would that be? So the truth is I haven't read a lot of, so mindfulness, as you know, is incredibly simple. Yes, it is. is. Like it's literally, you could write a book and I have one sentence, right? But if I was going to recommend one to someone, I really like John Kabat-Zinn's work. Um, And any of his books, I think would be phenomenal. He is so smart about this stuff and has a great way of bringing it down to, you know, digestible information for people. I really like him and his MBSR stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Can you share an app? which can help with some aspect of mindfulness. All right. So I'm going to be a little bit of a pain. (laughs) So the answer is I don't have an app that I use. I've used, you know, for including meditation in that I have used like the insight timer app and I have used the headspace app for meditation, which, you know, our meditation and mindfulness are related. I think we need to be careful with the apps. So I was talking to someone the other day who'd been to this spa where you go and you plug into all these things and it tells you whether you're being mindfulness or breathing. And I don't think that's the point. Like now it's, now it's becoming like a to do, like I'm doing a good job. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I, I just think, and, and also I'm a big fan of technology fasting of like, if I'm going to be mindful, I don't want to have my phone near me. 
like if I, if I'm like, I mean, I hope I'm mindful throughout my entire day, but if I'm like setting aside time to be mindful, to go be in nature or meditate, or I don't want my phone near me. I want to actually just be in my beingness. And so there probably are ones out there and I'm not saying they're not good. I'm just, I'm just saying, I think we need to be careful with those. Well, I totally agree with that. Yeah, we definitely need to be careful. And there's nothing more awesome than just going out into nature and leaving all technology behind and just breathing and relaxing. It's just awesome. Well, it's been awesome talking to you. And I love your book. Like I already said, Wild World Joyful Heart coming in October 2019. And I'm so grateful that you shared it with me, Lori. So go to LoriWarren.com, L-A. U-R-I-E-W-A-R-R-E-N and check out her website. So Lori, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. For me as well, Bruce, this was so much fun. I feel like we could talk for hours. <laughs> I do too. I do too. I do so too. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. All the best. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. So remember what I said at the top of the show about Meet Edgar and how that tool can help you with your social media content so much. Check it out and get, like I said, the second month free. You already get the first month free. Get the second month free with this URL. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash Edgar. E-D-G-A-R. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.